0: chancellor's autumn statement what does it mean for defense the new deputy commander of ISAF tells us his hopes for the Afghan people
1: now what will help I'm sure is when uh, the United States government and NATO nations decide what the enduring presence will look like come 2015 that will help also to give Afghans the sense that we're still committed to them
0: and does the ambassador wear Prada New cuts to the defence budget announced in the Chancellor's autumn statement will be made without any new cuts to forces personnel and to military equipment. The Ministry of Defence says it can absorb the savings it's being asked to make because of spare capacity built into its budget and a special deal with the Treasury. BFBS reporter James Hurst was in Westminster yesterday for the long-awaited mini-budget.
2: It's two years since the defence budget was cut by more than 7% in the comprehensive spending review. The Chancellor's new spending cuts announced yesterday will go on top of that. 1% is taken out of next year's budget and 2% from the year after. According to the MOD's own figures, it means the department now has three quarters of a billion pounds less to spend between now and April 2015 than previously planned. But the Chancellor told Parliament the new spending cuts will not mean any new cuts to the MOD's people... Or equipment.
1: They will be given flexibility on their multi-year budget to ensure that this will not lead to reductions in military manpower or the core defence equipment programme over the Parliament.
2: That special flexibility from the Chancellor is only part of the reason they can avoid more redundancies or cancel contracts. The other part is unallocated provisions in the defence budget, money that was going to be spent but they hadn't yet decided what to spend it on. Now at least some of that money won't be spent at all. The impact is effectively hidden, but it will be felt by senior officers trying to get new equipment moved from the MOD wish list, known as the whiteboard, into the actual spending programme. Turning wishes into reality will become even harder. There are longer term implications for defence from the Chancellor's statement yesterday and his wider message that austerity will last for five more years. It makes the government's stated aim to start increasing defence spending again from 2015 seem far less
0: achievable. James Hurst reporting. Well, I'm joined in the studio by BFPS Defence analyst Christopher Lee and from the Financial Times by James Blitz, who is the newspaper's defence and security editor. Hello to both of you. Uh, James Blitz, first of all, you can't take three quarters of a billion pounds out of the the defence budget without consequences. What will they be? Well,
3: as your reporter correctly said, the consequences have been mitigated because uh, Philip Hammond has built up this reserve of cash that has not been used up till now, and the Chancellor has basically said, OK, I'm taking away £750 million from you in these cuts over the next two years, but you can use that cash to mop it up. So in that sense, uh, the effect is limited. The bad news, and I think it's very bad news for defence is that what the Chancellor has done is set a new baseline for defence spending for 2015 onwards. And that means that when defence goes into the next spending round, the round that basically takes you up to 2020, defence starts with a round, my calculation is about £500 million pounds less every single year between 2015 and 2020, And that's bad news because defence has got to meet the targets set out in SDSR for Future Force 2020. And I think service chiefs are waking up today and they're saying, hang on a tick, we thought we were going to be able to achieve all that. We've been through a number of corrections to SDSR. And now suddenly you're looking at a situation where... You are £500 million down every year from 2015 to 2020 unless the Treasury gives something else. And so that, for me, is the bad news. So, James, what do you think the consequences will be? The first consequence is that the MOD is going to be in a very, very tough fight with the Treasury ahead of the next spending round, which I think is now going to be next year from the Chancellor's statement. And what they're going to say is, look, the baseline for defence spending is not this new one, which is £500 million down. It's what you said it was in 2010. That's the baseline. So any increase is on that, that slightly higher figure that you set out in 2010. But I think they're going to lose that argument, frankly. And I just think the worry is that the service chiefs are going to have to find more cuts it's as simple as that and i just don't think this has yet what's too early after the autumn statement. so do you,
0: do you not buy this line of, of no cuts to personnel and no cuts to equipment then no i don't i don't buy it at all i think it's a serious
3: problem and I, I i asked the mod about this at great length yesterday and they basically admitted to me they had no guarantees about what this baseline figure for 2015 was they will be going into the spending round with defence spending from 2015 to 2020 £500 million pounds a year lower than they had thought it
4: would be.
0: Christopher Lee, uh, your thoughts on the Chancellor and defence in his statement yesterday?
4: Yeah, James is absolutely right. Um, when he says, uh, not going to cut people, not going to cut cut equipment, um, two things come to mind. People, they almost got it down to the minimum anyway, if you want to develop an organisation which can carry out the ambitions, let's say, of foreign policy. But the most important thing about this, let's start right from the beginning. The the Defence Ministry was told that it would get a 1% annual increase, or certainly by 2015. It ain't going to get that down. It's going to come off 1%, as all departments are coming off 1% uh, at the moment. But in fact, it comes out at minus 2%, not just 1%. Also, inflation costs in Defence industries and defence ministry industries are much higher than the inflation that you and I might work with an, an ordinary budget. We, we imagine that's because of, you know, the cost of, of doing things. The other thing, you start looking at the increased cost, which I imagine might come out on the carrier programme, because very few programmes actually stick to the cost where they are. Uh, what about the F-35 programme, which they just simply don't know how much it's going to cost because what's going on in America at the moment? What Will the Type 26 programme uh, be able to deliver it on time? These are the out years that they've got to worry about. The truth is also that the Chancellor was effectively saying yesterday that the deficit, the government deficit, you know, being broke, how much you have to borrow, is not going to be fixed. In under, perhaps before 2020, some people are saying this morning after and analysing what he said, it may take a decade plus and therefore, as we've always imagined, defence is going to be on the back foot. Also, coming out in, in, in Af- uh, from Afghanistan 2014-2015, Defence Ministry will not get the public support because it ain't at war anymore as far as the public's concerned.
0: James Blitz, um, you said that you think there will be more cuts. Uh, where exactly do you think the cuts will be?
3: Well, I think it's very hard to say. I mean, to meet these cuts, you have to basically cut running costs in the MOD. It's difficult to cut equipment so programs. So, civilian do you
0: think it'll be? Well,
3: I think possibly, but with the best will in the world, the army has just been cut from 102,000 to 82,000 uh, in 2020, and... One of the things which I find slightly depressing is I still have never heard a firm commitment from Philip Philip Hammond or the Prime Minister that 82,000 is the absolute bottom below which we will not go. We've never had that assurance, and so that's a worry. It may come in service personnel elsewhere. I don't want to create worries for listeners. We'll just have to see how things go, and there's still a battle to be had. But. You know, I don't think this has yet percolated through. I, I think they have to work out where they're going to find this half a billion a year.
0: All right, James Blitz from the Financial Times, thank you very much for your time today. Meanwhile, Britain's biggest defence manufacturer, BAE Systems, is considering ways of saving money after the spectacular failure of the so-called mega-merger with EADS. This week, David Cameron reassured the Commons that Portsmouth would remain open for the Royal Navy amid speculation that BAE is considering bringing its shipbuilding there to an end. Christopher, tell us about BAE in Portsmouth.
4: Yeah, we've got to distinguish... That if there's an announcement in future, uh, in, very shortly, that BA is pulling out of Portsmouth, it's not pulling out of the whole of Portsmouth. BA, for example, runs the uh, uh, Royal Naval uh, Dockyard in Portsmouth, but they also build bits of ships there. And I say bits of ships. For example, they're building the front end of the new carriers. What they do, they build the front end, the island, etc., and then cart it off to Glasgow. Well, it's it off to the Clyde, where it's bolted on to the other bit. When that sort of shipbuilding bit comes. That is the part that's very vulnerable. But they're signing new contracts now for, for some of the outer uh, offices of BAE uh, systems in and around Portsmouth. So it's not the whole of Portsmouth.
0: Just reminders us of the challenges facing BAE.
4: Um, hard up. It's as simple as that. Their share price is going up at the moment, which is great stuff. That's another
0: story altogether. That's isn't another it? story altogether. Just, just tell us why okay. they're hard up and what their problems are. Okay, facing, um, challenges.
4: Overstretched. Uh, n- in, in, in the wrong areas. And don't forget, the majority of BA I can't remember what the figure is, like 55,000, 60,000 people they employ. Most of them, are in fact, employed overseas. Uh, BAE Systems is a, a very big in the United States where it's working on the uh, United States on, on projects which will come back here, like the F-35, etc. Et but here we come to the, uh, the fundamental thing. Do you remember we were talking about EADS? Uh, they wanted a merger with BAE. Indeed, or yes. In fact, it was BAE who wanted a merger with them.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Now, it didn't come off. The fact that they wanted to merge with a big company showed, in fact, they hadn't got the structure right of the company. I think one of the reasons the share price is going up, which seems to contradict all this, uh, is because they are clearing out the house and they'll be looking to merge, perhaps, with an American company like Boeing or even even, even Grumman. You then dodge north to the Clyde where there are two dockyards which BAE systems have got that's when you can do more uh, uh, shipbuilding and future shipbuilding unless of course Scotland goes independent.
0: So if BAE does close its shipbuilding at Portsmouth what does that mean exactly?
4: Um, it It won't mean for example you won't see ships at you know, Portsmouth will still be very, very grey because when those carriers turn up, where are they based? They're based in Portsmouth. And so you'll have all the expertise, how to maintain them, even sort of uh, AMP, you know, alongside uh, and, and, uh, uh, maintenance. But the strict thing to watch for, they could do without one dockyard because they won't be doing that much shipbuilding. So
0: one of the, one of the three. That...
4: I think perhaps the, the dockyard, the shipbuilding part in Portsmouth would go and that would cost 1,500 jobs, but not necessarily on the Clyde.
0: Sitrep with Kate Still to come: fractured, transient, and dysfunctional. That's how the wife of a high-ranking American Army officer has described family life in the military, and what's in vogue when it comes to presidential appointments. BFES, sit Sitrep. The new deputy commander of ISAF is warning next year will be critical in determining Afghanistan's future. Lieutenant General Nick Carter says it's essential to show people across the country they won't be left alone, despite the approaching deadline for the drawdown of international combat forces. He's been speaking to BFBS reporter Kath Brazier, who asked him how much had changed in the country since he was last there in 2010.
1: Well, I think the biggest change uh, was the October 2010 Lisbon Summit, which, of course, set the 2014 deadline for the end of the NATO mission. Because during my time in 09 and 10, it was very much when massive troop reinforcements were coming in here. We uplifted the Afghan security forces by probably 60 or 70%, and we were determined that we were going to be here for a long time fighting a counterinsurgency campaign. What, of course, changed in October 2010 with the deadline was that we were in the business of transitioning this as quickly as four years allows us to do, to Afghans. And, of course, deadlines have a habit of focusing minds. So I think that's the thing that's probably changed most in terms of my appreciation of two years ago to now.
6: What is the plan for 2014, and how do you explain that to the Afghans and give them confidence?
1: Well, that, of course, is the key issue, because um, the Afghans are very worried that 2014 will be like a cliff edge. Um, I'm quite sure the economy is going to take a thump, because when you withdraw, that a better part of, well, tens of thousands of international troops. A lot of money will leave the economy. But more importantly, it's about Afghans' understanding that actually this period of transition is simply a continuum which will roll forward into what Tokyo described as the decade of transformation. And if they can see it as a continuum, and if they can see that the Tokyo commitments are genuine international community commitments, then I think there's a reasonable chance that their confidence will be retained.
6: But when you're speaking to the Afghans on the ground, presumably their reaction, like you explained, is quite nervous. So how do you explain it to your sort of the Joe Bloggs Afghan, so to speak?
1: Well, I think that um, you'll probably recall the um, Americans signed a strategic partnering agreement last year, And you have to keep reminding Afghans that the United States government, which is the biggest player here, along with the EU, the Japanese, the Germans and the British in donor terms, are already committed. But, of course, Afghans really only worry about who's going to be in charge tomorrow. And their memories are of 35 years of desperate times and desperate chaos. So they have to continue to be reconvinced. Now, what will help, I'm sure, is when uh, the United States government and NATO nations decide what the enduring presence will look like come 2015. That will help also to give Afghans the sense that we're still committed to them.
6: And do we have a timeline for that at all?
1: It'll happen over the next two to three months, would be my guess. But a lot of it will depend upon the security agreement that the United States Government will sign with the Afghan Government, which will be negotiated over the course of the next six months or so.
6: Okay, so looking ahead to 2014, obviously 2013, if we look just slightly closer, is going to be the last full year of, of combat. So how does that change policy um, in the... In, you've covered some of it, but how does it change policy, especially in Helmand, I suppose, on the, on the looking towards drawdown?
1: Well, the first thing I'd say is that 2013 is the key year. It's the dress rehearsal for 2014. 2014 is a fundamental year in Afghanistan because it's the year when there will be a political transition between President Karzai's government and whatever the successor government will look like. And how that transition occurs, whether the election is credible and the extent to which uh, we end up with a partner that the Afghans are comfortable with themselves and the international community can work with is critical. So 2013 is the is the key year. Um, I wouldn't describe it, though, as the last year of combat operations. It's our goal that by the second half of next year, the Afghans will have the security lead for all of Afghanistan, and we will be here very much in a training, advising and assisting role. So... Combat operations, yes, up to a point, but we've got quite a well-thought-through plan that sees us advising at ever-increasing levels in the Afghan chain of command during the course of the next six to nine months. So that I would hope that by this sort of time next year, we are having advisors plugged in really at quite a high level, at the brigade level, and working on some of the um, more esoteric capabilities they need, like artillery and um, helicopters and medical capabilities and those sorts of things.
0: That was Lieutenant General Nick Carter, the new Deputy Commander of ISAF, talking to Kath Brazier. Uh, Christopher, what do you think of what he said?
4: I can remember when he came back. You know, he, he, he got the job in 2009 when he uh, when he was promoted and, and driving six div, uh, and he came back from this session in uh, in Afghanistan, and I made a note. To it. He says, "Time is not on our side." He said, "The insurgents is resilient, and alive, and well."
0: Mm. And and he, he, would, he
4: would say that's changed now, wouldn't he, obviously? Well, he would say that it's still there, the insurgent st- is still there, uh, it's still alive, it's still well, but he hopes that what's been done, and effectively what he's talking about here, what has been done to get the Afghan uh, army in particular up to speed with the promise of equipment, with the promise of still training, uh, will not be enough to guarantee the stability of Afghanistan, but it will be enough to leave. And I was in, you know, I was in Brussels on Wednesday. He talked to the guys there uh, at, the, at the meeting they had, the foreign ministers, and the majority of them, not all, majority of them saying, this was a lousy war to be in. And the only thing we have achieved out of it is kicking Al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan. I, sp- I
0: suppose will also, I mean, you're looking ahead to 2014, um, the new government that's elected, that will be potentially what's really been achieved, if that can be made a success. It could have got a government anyway.
4: I think they could have got... It depends what the government is. It depends how much support it And if the got. elections are and fair
0: and they're just and well, seem to be Well, they're not to going to be
4: fair so. and just, you know, as a rule, in, as there used to be in Northern Ireland and all sorts of other places. In, in, in Afghanistan, the rule for, for, for voting is vote early and vote often. And it's that sort of, those sort of problems you have. But it all depends on things that we, we never get round to thinking about because they're too complex. For example, Pashtuns. Whoever runs Afghanistan has got to be a Pashtun. Now, why? Because that's the majority of influence. That's where the warlords are. Look around to see what the warlords think uh, of what uh, Nick Carter's saying at the moment and say to them, what do you reckon? You think you can hack it? And they're looking over their shoulders all the time because some of the best warlords have been killed and they're saying, we have not got to a point where we've got guaranteed security. Uh, and I think that is the crucial part of it.
0: And just briefly tell us about the new U.S. general who's going to be in charge of all this, General James Dunford.
4: He got confirmed. Uh, you see, what, what happens when you, when you get a, a new appointment, you can't just sort of say, right, we've just appointed him, and you, you nip in, and will you take control? He has to go to the Senate, and they have to have confirmation hearings on any, any major appointment. He is going to have the job of clearing up and clearing out. Uh, he hasn't got a great track record there because he had been doing other things. But the most important thing, if you talk to the Americans about it, is said, well, you know, he's a U.S. Marine Corps, so we can do it.
0: This is BFBS. CIGRAP. The wife of a high-ranking commander in the U.S. Army has written a candid article in the Washington Post about what life is really like for those married to the military. Rebecca Sinclair's husband, Brigadier General Jeffrey Sinclair, faces charges of sexual misconduct. But instead of remaining quietly in the background while the investigation goes on, she's spoken out about the fractured, transient and dysfunctional lives that military families are forced to lead. Well, a little earlier I spoke to Catherine Spencer, Chief Executive of the Army Families Federation, and asked her what she made of the article.
5: Well, I think there were a lot of, um, there were some similarities with what goes on in the UK. Obviously, the, the American military deployed for far longer than us, but you can tell from that article that they also, they also suffer from frequent mobility, from moving, from, you know, the same issues, really, separation, deployment and mobility that I think many um, British army families will also be familiar with.
0: Are you surprised about how open and honest she was in the article?
5: Uh am I surprised i think i suppose i'm um, it's unusual for us to hear uh, such candid response um from a senior military spouse um i imagine that she's in a situation where perhaps she feels she's got nothing
0: to lose do you think it does some good because i mean you don't hear these kind of accounts about the difficulties and the pressures on families of long tours and potentially infidelity etc very often do you um not I from think... the wife's point of view at least yeah
5: Possibly not. Um, I, think, I think that army families um, have received quite a lot of airing in recent years and people are, are aware that soldiers deploy. I think what we've seen there in that article is really quite a heart-wrenching account of how difficult it can be. And really she, her story is about years of loneliness, really, and years of waiting for her soldier uh, and the difficulties one faces when you are at home. Uh, on your own, so um, I think it's good in terms of highlighting the issues and maybe making it more personal. It's from it's as a result of a fairly sensational story, so it's drawn attention to those issues and perhaps people that might not normally give them so much attention uh, will have been drawn to listen to them.
0: Indeed, and the problems that she has highlighted, which you mentioned, uh, she she says that often a spouse won't talk about them simply because they're afraid of affecting either their spouse's career on which they're dependent financially.
5: Yeah, well, I think there was a perception that if you spoke out, um, it could affect your soldier's career. I'd really like to think that we've moved away from that within the UK. I obviously can't speak about what it's like in the U.S., um, there's certainly organisations like the Army Families Federation. Um, and we've got the RAF Families Federation, the NFF. Um, they they started to give families a voice so that you can raise issues confidentially and independently. But I think we're a much more modern army now, and certainly when we deal with command, they're very open to ideas. And whilst we all always respect. Uh, people's confidentiality. I think the door is open for people to raise issues.
0: Now let's talk about the the military covenant because today is the release of the first annual assessment of how the government's doing. It's saying that it's got more work to do, the government, and the way it treats the armed forces and their families. Um, Has the last year been better for forces' families or worse? Well, I think the armed forces' covenant is a
5: fantastic document. Um, I was one of the cynics when it was first Um, mooted but having seen it in action and seen some of the cross-governmental work going on I think what it has really done is opened a lot of doors so that um, it was far more difficult to navigate around um, the different government departments previously and we're seeing those community covenants coming through now with people showing far more interest and understanding and a willingness to make things right for army families so certainly at the delivering service, delivering services in terms of education and healthcare. I think the Armed Forces Covenant has highlighted areas that need work on, and that is fantastic. In terms of whether things have got better for forces families, well, that's down to that's an individual matter. But of course, what we can say is that we are facing the three Rs: redundancy rebasing and reserves and all of those things are impacting on army families so we've got we know that we've got another tranche of redundancy to come probably at the back end of January Um, and that will mean a lot of people drawn into that some of us went through that in 2012 pretty unpleasant few months waiting to find out whether or not you were being made redundant Um, and of course we're in the midst of a pay freeze as well Uh, so I think everybody is beginning to find that they've got less money in their pockets. So I don't think we can say things have improved. And a lot of families, like many other UK families who aren't military, are finding it more difficult to make ends meet.
0: And I suppose in the case highlighted by Rebecca Sinclair's article, um, it's really drawn attention to the uh, the way that wives and families are affected by all of these pressures. What more can be done to support them? Well, I
5: think what we've... What I'm encouraged by is that command and government seem to have noticed that um, army families need two decent incomes to support the family, two reliable incomes, and it's been far too difficult in the past to enable families to access to incomes. So we've got much more recognition of the importance of employment for the family. I think there's still more to be done in terms of childcare because we know that even though we might be withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, we're bringing people back from Germany, employment might be more possible but it will only be possible if there's more childcare available to enable service spouses to work because we know that their soldiers have very unpredictable work patterns, they're free Frequently away, and it's really that childcare support that's
0: going to enable families to move forward. That was Kevin Spencer, the chief executive of the Army Families Federation. Uh, Christopher, okay, so the first assessment of how the government's delivering on its Armed Forces Covenant at an important date.
4: Yeah, and also if you were doing it, marking out of ten, you probably get six plus out of ten, which is not bad. Not bad. The important thing about the Covenant is that for the first time, you've got a you've got a slogan, if you like. And the people who are are trying to sort things before, like medical care, um, child care, all sorts of things like this, now can turn around and say, here is a covenant. I'm acting on behalf of the covenant, and what are you going to do about it? It's certainly
0: raised the profile, hasn't
4: it? We've also got to remember, though, that, um, and we we got a sense of it there in some ways, civilians are going through the same thing, but probably in worse conditions. And that's to be remembered. The armed forces, although special, are not exclusive in their anxieties. I mean, if you go into the uh, social care services at the moment, and you go and talk to them about the difficulties of childcare, who pays, uh, how do you fix it, the fact that you've got to have two, if you're on low income, you've got to have two incomes just to eat regularly, then the same thing you'll find in, in, in the in the. In the military, especially when are coming back to the United Kingdom, and not everybody's coming back. We only keep 9,000, let's say, in, in Afghanistan, and, but the majority of them are not just coming back. Um, you've got the same problems in civilian life as you have in, in military life, but you can't pull the two, if you, if you like, the two uh, efforts together because they're, they're dealing with two different types of uh, society.
0: OK, just before we go, um, a couple of things to touch on. Rumours this week that the editor of American Vogue, Anna Wintour, is on President Obama's shortlist to become a US ambassador to either London or Paris. So, Christopher, how can this be? Well, if you look
4: at it, when he, when he first got into office, he appointed 59 ambassadors, right?
5: Mm-hmm.
4: 40 of them. 40 of those 59 ambassadors uh, what they uh, are what they call bundlers. Um, and bundlers are people who... So they're
0: not career diplomats? or They're, they're not they're
4: career diplomats at all. So is
0: it because, as, as I read, that it's because she helped so much in the presidential ca- uh, she, uh, campaign? She raised
4: money, she, she helped in the presidential campaign, um, and she was very much... Online as uh, as, as an Obama supporter, but can you imagine it? She earns about two million dollars a year at the moment. She lives in Soho, not Soho, London, not the seedy place in London, but the smart place in New York. Um, She is society. Uh, She'll come over. Do you think she'd be
0: good as the as the ambassador in London?
4: She'd be good as anybody. I mean, (laughs) as (laughs) they could they've only had uh, there in the past ten years. They've only uh, no past forty years. They've only been ten. Two, three, four, four. No, three good uh, foreign service, in other words, professional ambassadors here. All the rest have been handouts from people who bunged a load of money into campaigns, etc. Raymond Zeitz, who was the best ambassador, uh, he said at one point, you know, uh, to be a professional ambassador, you have to cope with boredom in the United Kingdom, because no longer... Do you rate? And this is the important thing. It's the most important position the Americans can appoint as ambassador, but no longer is an important thing to do.
0: As we're talking of the Americans, let's talk about Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, on her farewell tour. <sighs> Gosh,
4: I mean, she is. I mean, she is probably the best foreign uh, foreign secretary, yeah, Secretary of State that the Americans have had for a long time, including Condoleezza Rice. Um, I saw her in Brussels this week. She looks like tired, etc. Yeah, um, um, she has said that she's, you know, she wants to move on. Um, and perhaps move on. She's so, moving so she on needs to, Northern
0: to Northern Ireland tomorrow.
4: That move, do you know why Northern Ireland? Northern Ireland for the Clintons was the big success story. It was Bill Clinton who really pulled together with Tony Blair the whole Northern Ireland peace programme. So it's a good
0: way to end this part of her career, at least.
4: It's a good way, but it's getting a lot of money because her next part of her career is to decide whether she's going to run for president. If she runs for president, that costs millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars to do it. Where did the big money come from when she tried to beat Obama for the selection for the presidential candidate? It came from Irish-Americans. Irish-Americans are very, very important. And who's she taking to this visit to, to Ireland uh, in, the, in the next couple of days? A whole gang of people, including Irish senators, Irish-American senators from Washington. It is a big, big thing for her. But the point is, in three, four years' time, does she want to be president? Well, the one thing that would be good about being president, she will not have to travel so much.
0: Briefly, Christopher, um, what should we look out for next week?
4: Uh, what's going on in Egypt? It's extraordinarily important. That whole thing could fall apart. The whole Arab Spring in Egypt could fall apart. And what people are trying to do is to stop a referendum happening on December the 15th. If it happens, that could be an absolute disaster. People are getting killed as we're talking now.
0: Christopher, thank you. That is all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors and to you, Christopher. Do keep your comments coming on Twitter. We are at BFBS Sitrep. Join us again next week, but from me, Kate Jebo, goodbye for now and thanks for listening.
3: This is Sitrep on BFBS.